We are continuing on our series through uh, the five points of Calvinism. Uh, it's going to take us six weeks because we took one week off, obviously, because uh, we didn't gather for church that week, but uh, we'll be uh, finished that, and then we're going to go into the series on the book of James. Um, so look forward to that also. We've covered already in, in this, and now I, uh, if you didn't, you can afterwards, outside on the uh, table, there are little cards that you can pick up, and these are handy just for extra studies. So there's systematic theology references there, there's books you can either download for free or purchase, and then there's a couple of QR codes that you can scan to find some online lectures that will go into more depth than what we can do in one sermon. And I've been saying, um, and I do mean it, that I hope that this series is only, only a taster or a beginner for uh, a lot of us in terms of, of deeper theology, of what we listen to, uh, what books we go and read, how, how deep we study. Um, uh, this, this sort of uh, doctrine of the, the sovereignty of God in all things, especially our salvation, it has a way of expanding your view of God, of deepening your affections, uh, uh, expanding your, your understanding and, and uh, desire for understanding in the Word of God. So I hope that uh, those references are, are helpful for you. All three weeks are currently out there on the, on the table, and they will be there while you grab them. As well as that, some of the, I know that Jono's, James's, and uh, Ken's fellowship group, as they start up, and I hope you're going to be involved in those, they will also be pulling apart the sermon series for five weeks or maybe even the whole term. So, uh, so far we have covered that uh, uh, the, the, the five points of Calvinism have been given to us in what has been uh, historically handed down through a handy little acrostic which is after a flower, the national flower of the Netherlands, because that's where the big council was of Dort, where they put together the five points of Calvinism and put down the five points of Arminianism. So they gave it to us in a flower. It's tulip. There's lots of reasons. We don't necessarily like all of the, the acrostic names, uh, total depravity or unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. We might want to fiddle with that and call them more handy things, and I think that's helpful, but we can't pick a better sounding flower. One of the guys called it Utlip, which is a town in, in like uh, backwater Netherlands, so they sort of pulled that one. They preferred that order. We don't really care. What we're doing is we're taking the historical doctrine as it's been handed down through church history, and we're saying, what is this speech of Calvinism? Well, what's it mean, and, uh, and what does it mean to hold on to it? What, what, uh, what uh, ways does it inform the rest of our theology? So far, we have seen T, total depravity, meant that mankind, naturally born after the fall, is fallen in Adam, and therefore every faculty of their being of our being when we're born is unable to respond rightly to God unless he first gives us a new heart. So the heart of mankind is desperately wicked and cannot choose Christ for salvation. Therefore, if God was to leave all mankind <coughs> in the choice that their natural condition led them to choose, God would save absolutely nobody. That leads to the second one, which is you from last week. U stands for unconditional election, which is that God, not because of anything he saw in us, but simply because of his own purposes in grace, chose for himself a certain number of people who would be saved. And therefore he said, everybody who will be in heaven will be there because God chose them to be there before the foundation of the world. 
Well, in this acrostic tulip, we now find ourselves at what is the most controversial of the five points. And that's a pretty big badge to wear because it's Calvinism. It's one of the most controversial. All of these points uh, will spark controversies and arguments, no doubt. But limited atonement is where most people, if they will call themselves four-pointers, which sometimes they say, I like the rest, I like that we're totally different, well, I don't like it, but I like, I'm okay with the logic of it. I see it in Scripture. We are totally depraved. We are un- unconditionally elected. God will work in us to believe. That's next week. And if those, those who believe will be kept for salvation until the end, that's P. Uh, uh, but it's this one. I, I'm okay with all of that, but I don't like saying that when Jesus came to earth to die, he came to die for just a limited number. You know, when we talk of the cross, that's the heart of the gospel. And it feels like we're limiting the gospel, limiting the love of God, limiting the grace of God and his heart towards mankind if we say that Jesus only died for a small amount. First of all, I don't like talking of a small amount since John tells us that those in heaven will be beyond what human numbers can count. So it's not a small number. I don't even like saying that it will be a a minority. I have argued this before. I believe that the majority will be in heaven giving Christ glory for his redemption. The minority will be in hell, but there will be some in hell. Let me give to us this evening a definition of limited atonement, and then we'll start pulling it all apart. Here's our definition that we're working with. We mean, when we say limited atonement, that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person. And that is because God did not sovereignly intend for it to have the same effect on every person. Rather, it was his sovereign purpose to send his son to fully purchase every blessing that was needed to actually redeem the elect, and he would secure an open invitation to any person, including the non-elect, if they believe. So, let's, let's uh, break that down a little bit. First of all, we, we're saying that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person. And I, and I want you to, to focus in on this and try and hear what I am saying, because when we talk about limited atonement, one of the biggest reasons it's despised is because it's so misunderstood. So, so hear what we are saying. We'll try and cover a lot. Next week, we'll have a Q&A that you can send some into, or grab me afterwards. I would love to talk to you about this as well. So, we believe that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every single person. Now, every single Christian theologian who is not liberal, who is not uh, a universalist, which means every single person will be saved, every Christian theologian agrees with this. Everyone agrees that the death of Christ will uh, will not affect every single person the same way. Some will still go to hell. Some people will hear about it and reject it. Some people will believe it and be saved. It doesn't affect every person the same way. The non-Calvinist wants to say that that is because not every person responds in their own heart by their free will in the same way. Whereas us Calvinists should say the next line of of the definition, which is that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person. And that is because God did not sovereignly intend by his free will for the death of Christ to have the same effect on all people. So the Arminian wants to say that when God sent his son into the world, he sacrificed him for every single person in the same way equally. And what the death procured or purchased is nothing more than an open door to forgiveness 
or a free offer of salvation, but the individual has to choose to accept it or can choose to reject it. Therefore, because it is simply opening the door of salvation, it can be said that he died in that way to every single person. However, the Calvinists will respond with our next line, which is this. Rather, it was his sovereign purpose to send his son to fully purchase every blessing that was needed to actually redeem the elect. This is primary. The first and foremost reason that the father sent the son, the reason was so that definite redemption or actual salvation would be accomplished for a set number of people who we covered last week are the elect. I hope that's, I hope that's making sense. The reason the death of Christ won't affect everybody the same way is not ultimately because of mankind's response, but ultimately because of God's intention in the cross for it to actually and fully save his chosen people. And then we say, secondly, and I put it in this order intentionally, it is then secondarily to secure an open invitation of salvation to any person, including the non-elect, as long as they believe. So, 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 so the Arminian wants to say, or the non-Calvinist will say, that in the death of Christ, he opened the door of salvation. He, Jesus died for everybody in the sense that if anybody believe, and you have to do that, if anybody believe, you will be saved. And the Calvinist, they expect the Calvinist to disagree with that, but we ought to wholeheartedly agree. Say, absolutely, that was an effect of the cross of Jesus. We believe that anybody who believes can now be saved. That is absolutely true. We don't go less far in the atonement. We go further. We don't call it limited atonement because we have a less powerful gospel. We say it is limited in how many people it is directly to, but it is far more unlimited in its effect and its extent in terms of its potency. We say, absolutely, Jesus died for every person in the sense that anybody who believes will be saved. But he also died, considering our total depravity and unwillingness to believe, he also died for the elect in order to fully accomplish and secure their redemption by the purchase that was transacted on the cross. <clears throat> so, again, I'll just read that and then we'll go through John Owen's trilemma. We believe by limited atonement that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person and that is because God did not sovereignly intend for it to have the same effect on every person. Rather, it was his sovereign purpose to send his son to fully purchase every blessing that was necessary to actually redeem the elect. And secondarily, he, secured, he sent him to secure an open invitation to any, including the non-elect, if they believe. Another logical argument, and then we're going to go straight into scripture starting in John 10, where I got you to open up. John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I recommend it to you. There are some simplified versions out there. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a great introduction to it, but I recommend to have a read. One particularly potent... No, I haven't finished it yet. I'm still making my way through. Uh, but there is one particularly potent section where he makes this argument in his book where he makes what we call a trilemma. You know what a dilemma is? A dilemma is choose one or the other. Well, a trilemma is a choice between three. And he says, when we look at the atonement of Christ, you logically only have three options when we talk about who he died for. First of all, you can say that Jesus died for all of the sins of every individual. And in that way, 
Every single person will be saved. Secondly, the second option is, he can die for some of the sins of that same group of people. Some sins of every single person. In which case, no one will be saved because you're not saved unless every single one of your sins are paid for. Okay, so you have no one saved or everybody saved, both unbiblical. He says the third of the trilemma, which we will stick our feet into, is thirdly that Jesus died for all of the sins of some people, those people being God's chosen elect. And in that sense, some people will be definitely and fully saved. Logically, that's a rear naked choke. You, you can't get out of that logic of John Owen. And it's, it's not mere logic. It's not just philosophizing about the Bible. He pulls that exegetically out of the text, as we will do as well. But you can see the reality here that we might stand up and say, I just don't like how it sounds. I prefer to be able to say some other formulation of gospel presentation. You might, might irk a little bit at the language of limited atonement. But friends, we're, we're spending time in the scripture thinking logically, theologically, and biblically tonight. That is the tight scriptural logic that is before us. Either Jesus died for all of the sins of everybody, which means everyone will be saved unbiblical. There are people in hell. Or he died for some of the sins of everybody, which leaves everybody with some sins to pay for and therefore damned because he can't pay for any of them. Or he died for all of the sins, including your unrepentance, including the lack of faith. He died for all of the sins of some people. That is what we believe limited atonement is. <clears throat> now, we're going to go into the Bible, and first we're going to spend a few different scriptures arguing the point, or really asking the question, what did Christ's death do for the elect that it did not do for the unelect? And then we're going to spend a very short amount of time asking the question, what did Christ's death accomplish and secure for the non-elect, those who will not go to heaven? Is there any benefit in the death of Christ for them? So, let's go to John chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. <clears throat> John chapter 10, we looked at this last week. Particularly, we were spending time in verse 3 through 6, no, sorry, 1 through 6, which is showing us this reality of Jesus having a group of people called the sheep. That was uh, his language of speaking of election. Those, those group, that one group of people, all of those people were given to him before the foundations of the world. Those were the people he came for. Those were the people that would have eternal life. Those were the people who he related to as the shepherd. We, we remember all of this language. That was election language. Well, in verse 11 onwards, we start seeing what Jesus does for those sheep. So, read in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We cannot start talking of the extent of the atonement, or in other words, what the death of Christ was achieving. We can't talk about that until we establish theologically and biblically what the intent of the atonement was. In other words, we can't talk about what it does until we start talking about what the sovereign God behind the atonement wanted it to do. Every theologian, Calvinist and non-Calvinist, will agree that whatever the cross achieved, it achieved what God wanted it to achieve. So we need to ask, what did God want it to achieve? Like, what was Jesus thinking of? As he was, during his life, living his, his ministries, he was looking forward to the cross, as he was thinking about what he would be doing there, as he was 
talking to his sheep and saying what he's going to be doing. How did he view it? He viewed himself as a good shepherd who had come to the salvation of a particular people that he calls his sheep. Therefore, when he thinks of the cross, he doesn't just think of an emblem of salvation, of an open door as, as, a, as a sign of forgiveness at that end of, of the field, and anybody that comes will be able to get themselves through the door that I open. He doesn't view it that way. He speaks in this intimate language where he's spoken of, I know them, they know me, I'll give them eternal life. This is this relationship I have with my sheep. He also says, and I will lay down my life for my sheep. The elect people of God dying for them in a way that he does not die for the non-elect, his non-sheep, is how Jesus views the cross. It is his intent behind it which informs the extent of, of it, Or Matthew Henry put it beautifully, and this is for those who have uh, uh, consumed a little bit more of covenant theology as we speak about here. Uh, he says that the covenant of grace, which is the gospel, the grace of God poured through the cross, making a covenant with, with uh, people who believe. The covenant of grace cannot do more than the covenant of redemption planned it to. And when we speak of the covenant of redemption, we mean that intra-Trinitarian pact made before the foundations of the world where God the Father said, I will give you a bride, she will give you great glory if you go and die for this bride. And the son said, I will go and die for this bride. And we can look at dozens of different scriptures that show us that kind of covenantal language between the father and the son. Now, let's, let's say it again. The covenant of grace in the gospel cannot do more than the Trinity uh, 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 agreed upon in their covenant of redemption for it to accomplish. So therefore, it is not simply what could the death of Christ have done. We will establish later that the death of Christ could save whoever God wants it to save. The point is, what did God intend for the death of Christ to accomplish. The shepherd's intent in verse 11 here is clearly that he is going to die and actually redeem and definitely atone for a group of people called his sheep, which is the elect that God has given to him. Look at verse 14. Then says, again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know my father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, he said in verse 14 about election, I know them, they'll know me. We have this uh, uh, union from the before the foundations of the world. But in verse 15, we see that part of that eternal relationship that Jesus, the shepherd, has with his sheep, the elect, is that he will lay his life down for them. Verse 15, he says uh, at the end of it, just as the Father knows me and I know my Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. This, like we said before, this is where four-point Calvinists get stuck. They say, I agree with the rest. I, I just prefer tulip and I don't like the L. Uh, I don't like the flower. I, it doesn't work for me. And R.C. Sproul used to say, we call four-point Calvinists Arminians, of course, uh, logically. Nonetheless, uh, it's five points or nothing, of course, but this is where they get stuck. They want to say he chose some and they will definitely be saved, but I simply cannot say that he died for just the elect. He died for everybody. We need to be able to say that. If that is true, if there is, a, if there is no sense in which Jesus died for the elect in a way he didn't die for the non-elect, and that's all we mean by limited atonement, 
there's no sense in which he died for the elect in a way he didn't die for the non-elect, then Jesus can't use these words unless these words mean nothing. He cannot say, I will lay down my life with intent to redeem the sheep unless the sheep hearing that can then say, well, you're just going to redeem everybody. Like you're not laying your life down for the sheep. It's like when you, when you double gift something, right? Everyone should be okay with being double gifted something or re-gifted something. Okay, your, your, your mum got you a terrible cheese board that you're never going to use. It's okay to give that to your friend for their engagement party. I just want to make that case. If it's a good gift, if it's a recycled, throw it out. But if it's a good gift, it's okay to pass it on. But what it's not okay to say is, here you go, I bought this for you. Because now it's a lie. It's okay to pass something on, but if they ask, you have to say, no, I, I didn't buy it. That applies to what Jesus is saying here. If he died for everybody in the same way, he can't say to his sheep, I'm laying my life down for you in particular. He simply has to say, I'm laying my life down for all, you may enter. But he can't use this language unless, of course, this language means the same thing if you scratch it out of the Bible. I'm just not willing to do that in one of the most intimate conversations or dialogues that Jesus is having about his sheep, the ones that he loves, the, the ones that he loves. Therefore, uh, uh, we can go to verse 16. <laughs> in verse 16 and onwards, we'll see this. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them also, that they, and they will listen to my voice, so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. We looked at that last week. For this reason, the Father loves me, verse 17, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge to do so, I have received from my Father. There is a language that you would have noticed is very repetitive there from the mouth of Jesus, which is lay down. I will lay it down, he says. It, uh, it says there in verse 11, 15, 16, twice in 17, and one in verse 18 again. He's saying lay it down, or lay my life down. That language is the Greek word um, uh, 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 tithemi. And what he's saying there, uh, he's saying the, the, the word means not simply that he will make available something, that he's going to possibly and hopefully do something for the people. That's not a hopeful word. It's a secure, certain, solid word. It's the kind of word that means I will establish. I will put something down. It's the same word that was used for deposits or for payments. I will lay down the deposit for the house. I will lay down the payment for the slave. I will lay down whatever is needed for the redemption of the sheep. Jesus is saying, I will fully and finally, solidly, certainly accomplish that which my sheep need. That's what I'm coming to do. I'm coming to lay it down. And he says in verse seven, uh, 18, I do it with authority. I lay it down myself. No one's forcing this on me. No one can take it from me. I am putting it down as a payment, an established giving, paid, set, accomplished work. We say this often here. When we preach the gospel, we shouldn't say that Jesus died and that offering is made to you and you should accept it and therefore be saved. Like, let Jesus' cross have its effect that it's meant to have. We don't preach the gospel that way because the apostles didn't. What we say, rather, is that Jesus made his offer to the Father on your behalf. He didn't offer it to you and you get to choose whether or not Jesus' cross was effective. He made it to the Father. He received his payment 
rose him from the dead to the right hand of authority, and now commands you, on the basis of what Jesus has done, repent and believe. That's the language here, because Jesus fully accomplished laying down the payment that was necessary and is exclusive because he keeps on saying, I'm doing that not for everybody. I'm doing it for my sheep. If there is any language, this is what Burkhoff says, he says, if there is anywhere that we can find in Scripture where Jesus does in his death something for a group of people which naturally precludes other people, then you have the limited atonement proved there finally. You, you really can't logically argue your way around it. As soon as Jesus says he's doing something for some people in his death that he doesn't do for everybody, you have to uh, uh, give up the fight. Limited atonement is there. That, that's all that we're saying. He did in his death something for the elect he didn't do for the rest. But look at verse 17 and verse 18. What we see again here, we're going back to God's original sovereign intent behind the cross. And that is the Father's intent in sending his Son. Verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me. In verse 18 he says, I have received this charge from my Father. He's speaking again about that covenant of redemption. That the Father would send Christ to the earth Sorry, he would send the Son to the earth to become the Christ in the place of the elect. That he would send the shepherd to the earth in the place of the sheep. The covenant of redemption stipulated that who he died for flows from why God sent him to die. Therefore, again, the extent of the atonement is tied to the intent of why God uh, uh, reckons the atonement. In verse 17, it says, The Father loves me because I'm dying for the sheep. Of course, as God the Son, he remained in the eternal love of God for all of eternity. But as the incarnate Christ, as the Redeemer, he actually earns the love of God. He actually kept the law to remain in the Father's blessing. He was standing in our place and for our sins and for our righteousness. So in that sense, he earned the love of God by dying for the people he sent him to die for. This is so central to the relationship that God has with his people through his son. Look at verse uh, 9 of chapter 17. We're going to skip out of this, this chapter and go forwards towards chapter 17. <clears throat> now, now this, this takes a little bit of, of uh, um, biblical theology, but, but, but this is called the high priestly prayer of Christ. Because he is doing what high priests used to do after they make an atonement. Or really, all around the whole system of atonement. The high priest, we often think of the, 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 the mediatory or atoning work of Christ. And we, we, we don't realize how embedded with Old Testament uh, uh, themes it is. Or rather, we should say, we don't realize how long God had been preaching the cross through the, the temple sacrifices. But so many of those sacrifices point to the realities behind the cross. We think of the sacrifice, the blood shedding, as the only part of the atonement. And that's not true. The high priests uh, used to make, in their atonement, there would be two parts. They would firstly be sacrificing the animal. And by shedding the blood, they are showing God on the altar, blood is the cost of life leave their blood in their body, let them live, instead receive this animal's blood, life is poured out, death is given. That was one part. 
But the other part was the laying the hands on the person or in the, in, in the Day of Atonement going into, the, into the, the, the most holy place and praying for the people. This is called the intercessory work where the mediator or the high priest goes in and pleads with God. We've made the sacrifice that you promised you would receive. Now I'm praying. This is a grace. I'm asking you, Lord, to graciously receive what we have bought. Our, our lambs are not enough. We do not inherently deserve your grace, but please give it to us on the merit of the sacrifice. The atoning work had those two parts, sacrifice and intercession. What we see in Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17 is him praying for the application over his people of his death just before he goes and sheds his blood as the high priest and the lamb, as the shepherd and the sheep. Now, the high priest in the Old Testament, he was making it, no, no one has a problem with this, by the way. Everyone agrees that the high priest in the Old Testament was making a sacrifice, making a payment for the sin only of the Israelites. It was obviously uh, 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 pre-picturing the cross, but it was obviously a limited atonement. It only applied to the Israelites. The, 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 the high priest is not shedding the blood for the Israelites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the, the, the Philistines. It just didn't happen. And also, when he went in to pray for those people, the tribes of Israel, he wore their names on his chest and prayed for them. And he wasn't praying for the Hittites, the Amorites, the Moabites, or any others. Okay, the, the, sacri- the people you sacrifice for are the people you pray for. Therefore, because it's one atoning work. Therefore, here's the argument. If you can find a place, say in Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17... If you can find a place where Jesus is explicitly praying for one group and not the others, then you have there evidence of this whole system of Jesus laying his life down for one group and not for others. Verse 9. Verse 9 is exactly where we find this. We see Jesus limit his prayer and we can reason from that with the rest of the biblical witness that Jesus had also limited his his sacrifice. John 17, verse 9, he says, I, and he's speaking of his, his people, those who currently believed in him. At that moment, it was pretty much just the apostles. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is explicitly giving us a picture here, what Hebrews will then pick up, that Jesus is a mediator that sacrifices sufficiently for his people and prays for his people. And because he prays for them, they will make it to the end. They will be saved. Therefore, we we, we see this as a joint atonement. His prayer, his sacrifice, both made for a limited number of people called the elect, what Jesus says, those who had given me before the foundation of the world. It's watertight. Burkhoff says, and this is a glorious doctrine that we should take joy in, that we were purchased certainly. Burkhoff says, why should he limit his intercessory prayer if he had actually paid the price for all? It's a great argument from Burkhoff there. <clears throat> okay, now also go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. And in verse 25 to 27, we read more about the death of Christ. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her 
having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, verse 27, so that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. We're talking about limited atonement. Can you pull out of this text an exclusivity of Jesus' death? First of all, absolutely yes, because of the context in which Paul is making this, this, uh, this little theological aside. The context is telling husbands how they should love their wives. Let me tell you, it's not loving to your wife to say, love every woman equally. Amen, someone? No. We are continuing on our series through uh, the five points of Calvinism. Uh, it's going to take us six weeks because we took one week off, obviously, because uh, we didn't gather for church that week, but uh, we'll be uh, finished that, and then we're going to go into the series on the book of James. Um, so look forward to that also. We've covered already in, in this, and now I, uh, if you didn't, you can afterwards, outside on the uh, table, there are little cards that you can pick up, and these are handy just for extra studies. So there's systematic theology references there, there's books you can either download for free or purchase, and then there's a couple of QR codes that you can scan to find some online lectures that will go into more depth than what we can do in one sermon. And I've been saying, um, and I do mean it, that I hope that this series is only, only a taster or a beginner for uh, a lot of us in terms of, of deeper theology, of what we listen to, uh, what books we go and read, how, how deep we study. Um, uh, this, this sort of uh, doctrine of the, the sovereignty of God in all things, especially our salvation, it has a way of expanding your view of God, of deepening your affections, uh, uh, expanding your, your understanding and, and uh, desire for understanding in the Word of God. So I hope that uh, those references are, are helpful for you. All three weeks are currently out there on the, on the table, and they will be there while you grab them. As well as that, some of the, I know that Jono's, James's, and uh, Ken's fellowship group, as they start up, and I hope you're going to be involved in those, they will also be pulling apart the sermon series for five weeks or maybe even the whole term. So, uh, so far we have covered that uh, uh, the, 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 the five points of Calvinism have been given to us in what has been uh, historically handed down through a handy little acrostic which is after a flower, the national flower of the Netherlands, because that's where the big council was of Dort, where they put together the five points of Calvinism and put down the five points of Arminianism. So they gave it to us in a flower. It's tulip. There's lots of reasons. We don't necessarily like all of the, the acrostic names, uh, total depravity or unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. We might want to fiddle with that and call them more handy things, and I think that's helpful, but we can't pick a better sounding flower. One of the guys called it Utlip, which is a town in, in like uh, backwater Netherlands, so they sort of pulled that one. They preferred that order. We don't really care. What we're doing is we're taking the historical doctrine as it's been handed down through church history, and we're saying, what is this speech of Calvinism, or well, what's it mean, and, uh, and what does it mean to hold on to it? What, what, uh, what uh, ways does it inform the rest of our theology? So far, we have seen T, total depravity, meant that mankind, naturally born after the fall, is fallen in Adam, and therefore every faculty of their being, of our being, when we're born, is unable to respond rightly to God unless he first gives us a new heart. So the heart of mankind is desperately wicked and cannot choose Christ for salvation. Therefore, if God was to leave all mankind <coughs> in the choice that their natural condition led them to choose, God would save absolutely nobody. That leads to the second one, which is you from last week. 
U stands for unconditional election, which is that God, not because of anything he saw in us, but simply because of his own purposes in grace, chose for himself a certain number of people who would be saved. And therefore he said, everybody who will be in heaven will be there because God chose them to be there before the foundation of the world. Well, in this acrostic tulip, we now find ourselves at what is the most controversial of the five points. And that's a pretty big badge to wear because it's Calvinism. It's one of the most controversial. All of these points uh, will spark controversies and arguments, no doubt. But limited atonement is where most people, if they will call themselves four-pointers, which sometimes they say, I like the rest, I like that we're totally different, well, I don't like it, but I like, I'm okay with the logic of it. I see it in Scripture. We are totally depraved. We are unconditionally elected. God will work in us to believe. That's next week. And if those, those who believe will be kept for salvation until the end, that's P. Uh, uh, but it's this one. I, I'm okay with all of that, but I don't like saying that when Jesus came to earth to die, he came to die for just a limited number. You know, when we talk of the cross, it, it, that's the heart of the gospel. And it feels like we're limiting the gospel, limiting the love of God, limiting the grace of God and his heart towards mankind if we say that Jesus only died for a small amount. First of all, I don't like talking of a small amount since John tells us that those in heaven will be beyond what human numbers can count. So it's not a small number. I don't even like saying that it will be a, a minority. I have argued this before. I believe that the majority will be in heaven giving Christ glory for his redemption. The minority will be in hell, but there will be some in hell. Let me <clears throat> give to us this evening a definition of limited atonement, and then we'll start pulling it all apart. Here's our definition that we're working with. We mean, when we say limited atonement, that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person. And that is because God did not sovereignly intend for it to have the same effect on every person. Rather, it was his sovereign purpose to send his son to fully purchase every blessing that was needed to actually redeem the elect, and he would secure an open invitation to any person, including the non-elect, if they believe. So, let's, let's uh, break that down a little bit. First of all, we, we're saying that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person. And I, and I want you to, to focus in on this and try and hear what I am saying, because when we talk about limited atonement, one of the biggest reasons it's despised is because it's so misunderstood. So, so hear what we are saying. We'll try and cover a lot. Next week, we'll have a Q&A that you can send some into, or grab me afterwards. I would love to talk to you about this as well. So, we believe that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every single person. Now, every single Christian theologian who is not liberal, who is not uh, a universalist, which means every single person will be saved, every Christian theologian agrees with this. Everyone agrees that the death of Christ will, affect, uh, will not affect every single person the same way. Some will still go to hell. Some people will hear about it and reject it. Some people will believe it and be saved. It doesn't affect every person the same way. The non-Calvinist wants to say that that is because not every person responds in their own heart by their free will in the same way. Whereas us Calvinists should say the next line of the, of the definition, which is that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person. And that is because God did not sovereignly intend by his free will for the death of Christ to have the same effect on all people. 
So the Arminian wants to say that when God sent his son into the world, he sacrificed him for every single person in the same way equally. And what the death procured or purchased is nothing more than an open door to forgiveness or a free offer of salvation, but the individual has to choose to accept it or can choose to reject it. Therefore, because it is simply opening the door of salvation, it can be said that he died in that way to every single person. However, the Calvinists will respond with our next line, which is this. Rather, it was his sovereign purpose to send his son to fully purchase every blessing that was needed to actually redeem the elect. This is primary. The first and foremost reason that the father sent the son, the reason was so that definite redemption or actual salvation would be accomplished for a set number of people who we covered last week are the elect. I hope that's, I hope that's making sense. The reason the death of Christ won't affect everybody the same way is not ultimately because of mankind's response, but ultimately because of God's intention in the cross for it to actually and fully save his chosen people. And then we say, secondly, and I put it in this order intentionally, it is then secondarily to secure an open invitation of salvation to any person, including the non-elect, as long as they believe. So, 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 so the Arminian wants to say, or the non-Calvinist will say, that in the death of Christ, he opened the door of salvation. He, Jesus died for everybody in the sense that if anybody believe, and you have to do that, if anybody believe, you will be saved. And the Calvinist, they expect the Calvinist to disagree with that, but we ought to wholeheartedly agree. Say, absolutely, that was an effect of the cross of Jesus. We believe that anybody who believes can now be saved. That is absolutely true. We don't go less far in the atonement. We go further. We don't call it limited atonement because we have a less powerful gospel. We say it is limited in how many people it is directly to, but it is far more unlimited in its effect and its extent in terms of its potency. We say, absolutely, Jesus died for every person in the sense that anybody who believes will be saved. But he also died, considering our total depravity and unwillingness to believe, he also died for the elect in order to fully accomplish and secure their redemption by the purchase that was transacted on the cross. <clears throat> so, again, I'll just read that and then we'll go through John Owen's trilemma. We believe by limited atonement that Christ's death does not have the same effect on every person and that is because God did not sovereignly intend for it to have the same effect on every person. Rather, it was his sovereign purpose to send his son to fully purchase every blessing that was necessary to actually redeem the elect. And secondarily, he, secured, he sent him to secure an open invitation to any, including the non-elect, if they believe. Another logical argument, and then we're going to go straight into scripture starting in John 10, where I got you to open up. John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I recommend it to you. There are some simplified versions out there. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a great introduction to it, but I recommend to have a read. One particularly potent... No, I haven't finished it yet. I'm still making my way through. Uh, but there is one particularly potent section where he makes this argument in his book, 
where he makes what we call a trilemma. You know what a dilemma is? A dilemma is choose one or the other. Well, a trilemma is a choice between three. And he says, when we look at the atonement of Christ, you logically only have three options when we talk about who he died for. First of all, you can say that Jesus died for all of the sins of every individual. And in that way, every single person will be saved. Secondly, the second option is, he can die for some of the sins of that same group of people. Some sins of every single person. In which case, no one will be saved because you're not saved unless every single one of your sins are paid for. Okay, so you have no one saved or everybody saved, both unbiblical. He says the third of the trilemma, which we will stick our feet into, is thirdly that Jesus died for all of the sins of some people, those people being God's chosen elect. And in that sense, some people will be definitely and fully saved. Logically, that's a rear naked choke. You, you can't get out of that logic of John Owen. And it's, it's not mere logic. It's not just philosophizing about the Bible. He pulls that exegetically out of the text, as we will do as well. But you can see the reality here, that we might stand up and say, I just don't like how it sounds. I prefer to be able to say some other formulation of gospel presentation. You might, might irk a little bit at the language of limited atonement. But, friends, we're, we're spending time in the Scripture thinking logically, theologically, and biblically tonight. That is the tight scriptural logic that is before us. Either Jesus died for all of the sins of everybody, which means everyone will be saved unbiblical. There are people in hell. Or he died for some of the sins of everybody, which leaves everybody with some sins to pay for and therefore damned because he can't pay for any of them. Or he died for all of the sins, including your unrepentance, including the lack of faith. He died for all of the sins of some people. That is what we believe limited atonement is. <clears throat> now, we're going to go into the Bible, and first we're going to spend a few different scriptures arguing the point, or really asking the question, what did Christ's death do for the elect that it did not do for the unelect? And then we're going to spend a very short amount of time asking the question, what did Christ's death accomplish and secure for the non-elect, those who will not go to heaven? Is there any benefit in the death of Christ for them? So, let's go to John chapter 10, verse 11 through 18. <clears throat> John chapter 10, we looked at this last week. Particularly, we were spending time in verse 3 through 6, no, sorry, 1 through 6, which is showing us this reality of Jesus having a group of people called the sheep. That was uh, his language of speaking of election. Those, those group, that one group of people, all of those people were given to him before the foundations of the world. Those were the people he came for. Those were the people that would have eternal life. Those were the people who he related to as the shepherd. We, we remember all of this language. That was election language. Well, in verse 11 onwards, we start seeing what Jesus does for those sheep. So, read in verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We cannot start talking of the extent of the atonement, or in other words, what the death of Christ was achieving. We can't talk about that until we establish theologically and biblically what the intent of the atonement was. 
In other words, we can't talk about what it does until we start talking about what the sovereign God behind the atonement wanted it to do. Every theologian, Calvinist and non-Calvinist, will agree that whatever the cross achieved, it achieved what God wanted it to achieve. So we need to ask, what did God want it to achieve? Like, what was Jesus thinking of? As he was, during his life, living his, his ministries, he was looking forward to the cross. As he was thinking about what he would be doing there, as he was talking to his sheep and saying what he's going to be doing, how did he view it? He viewed himself as a good shepherd who had come to the salvation of a particular people that he calls his sheep. Therefore, when he thinks of the cross, he doesn't just think of an emblem of salvation, of an open door as, as, a, as a sign of forgiveness at that end of, of the field, and anybody that comes will be able to get themselves through the door that I open. He doesn't view it that way. He speaks in this intimate language where he's spoken of, I know them, they know me, I'll give them eternal life. This is this relationship I have with my sheep. He also says, and I will lay down my life for my sheep. The elect people of God dying for them in a way that he does not die for the non-elect, his non-sheep, is how Jesus views the cross. It is his intent behind it which informs the extent of, of it, or Matthew Henry put it beautifully, and this is for those who have uh, uh, consumed a little bit more of covenant theology as we speak about here. Uh, he says that the covenant of grace, which is the gospel, the grace of God poured through the cross, making a covenant with, with uh, people who believe, the covenant of grace cannot do more than the covenant of redemption planned it to. And when we speak of the covenant of redemption, we mean that intra Trinitarian pact made before the foundations of the world, where God the Father said, I will give you a bride, she will give you great glory, if you go and die for this bride, and the Son said, I will go and die for this bride, and we can look at dozens of different scriptures that show us that kind of covenantal language between the Father and the Son. Now, let's, let's say it again. The covenant of grace in the gospel cannot do more than the Trinity uh, 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 agreed upon in their covenant of redemption for it to accomplish. So therefore... It is not simply, what could the death of Christ have done? We will establish later that the death of Christ could save whoever God wants it to save. The point is, what did God intend for the death of Christ to accomplish? The shepherd's intent in verse 11 here is clearly that he is going to die and actually redeem and definitely atone for a group of people called his sheep, which is the elect that God has given to him. Look at verse 14. then says, again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know my father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, he said in verse 14 about election, I know them, they'll know me. We have this uh, uh, union from the before the foundations of the world. But in verse 15, we see that part of that eternal relationship that Jesus, the shepherd, has with his sheep, the elect, is that he will lay his life down for them. Verse 15, he says uh, at the end of it, Just as the Father knows me and I know my Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This, like we said before, this is where four-point Calvinists get stuck. They say, I agree with the rest. I, I just prefer tulip. And I don't like the L, I uh, don't like the flower, uh, it, do, it doesn't work for me. And R.C. Sproul used to say, we call four-point Calvinists Arminians, of course, uh, logically. 
Nonetheless, uh, it's five points or nothing, of course, but this is where they get stuck. They want to say, he chose some, and they will definitely be saved, but I simply cannot say that he died for just the elect. He died for everybody. We need to be able to say that. If that is true, if there is, a, if there is no sense in which Jesus died for the elect in a way he didn't die for the non-elect, and that's all we mean by limited atonement, there's no sense in which he died for the elect in a way he didn't die for the non-elect, then Jesus can't use these words unless these words mean nothing. He cannot say, I will lay down my life with intent to redeem the sheep unless the sheep hearing that can then say, well, you're just going to redeem everybody. Like you're not laying your life down for the sheep. It's like when you, when you double gift something, right? Everyone should be okay with being double gifted something or re-gifted something. Okay, your, your, your mum got you a terrible cheese board that you're never going to use. It's okay to give that to your friend for their engagement party. I just want to make that case. If it's a good gift, if it's a recycle, throw it out. But if it's a good gift, it's okay to pass it on. But what it's not okay to say is, here you go, I bought this for you. Because now it's a lie. It's okay to pass something on, but if they ask, you have to say, no, I, I didn't buy it. That applies to what Jesus is saying here. If he died for everybody in the same way, he can't say to his sheep, I'm laying my life down for you in particular. He simply has to say, I'm laying my life down for all, you may enter. But he can't use this language unless, of course, this language means the same thing if you scratch it out of the Bible. I'm just not willing to do that in one of the most intimate conversations or dialogues that Jesus is having about his sheep, the ones that he loved, the, the, the ones that he loves. Therefore, uh, uh, we can go to verse 16. <laughs> in verse 16 and onwards, we'll see this. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I will bring them also, that they, and they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. We looked at that last week. For this reason, the Father loves me, verse 17, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge to do so, I have received from my Father. There is a language that you would have noticed is very repetitive there from the mouth of Jesus, which is lay down. I will lay it down, he says. It, uh, it says there in verse 11, 15, 16, twice in 17, and one in verse 18 again. He's saying lay it down, or lay my life down. That language is the Greek word um, uh, uh, tithemi. And what he's saying there, uh, he's saying the, the, the word means not simply that he will make available something, that he's going to possibly and hopefully do something for the people. That's not a hopeful word. It's a secure, certain, solid word. It's the kind of word that means I will establish. I will put something down. It's the same word that was used for deposits or for payments. I will lay down the deposit for the house. I will lay down the payment for the slave. I will lay down whatever is needed for the redemption of the sheep. Jesus is saying, I will fully and finally, solidly, certainly accomplish that which my sheep need. That's what I'm coming to do. I'm coming to lay it down. And he says in verse seven, uh, 18, I do it with authority. I lay it down myself. No one's forcing this on me. No one can take it from me. I am putting it down as a payment, an established giving, paid, set, accomplished work. We say this often here, 
When we preach the gospel, we shouldn't say that Jesus died and that offering is made to you and you should accept it and therefore be saved. Like, let Jesus' cross have its effect that it's meant to have. We don't preach the gospel that way because the apostles didn't. What we say, rather, is that Jesus made his offer to the Father on your behalf. He didn't offer it to you and you get to choose whether or not Jesus' cross was effective. He made it to the Father. He received his payment rose him from the dead to the right hand of authority, and now commands you, on the basis of what Jesus has done, repent and believe. That's the language here, because Jesus fully accomplished laying down the payment that was necessary and is exclusive because he keeps on saying, I'm doing that not for everybody. I'm doing it for my sheep. If there is any language, this is what Burkhoff says, he says, if there is anywhere that we can find in Scripture where Jesus does in his death something for a group of people which naturally precludes other people, then you have limited atonement proved there finally. You, you really can't logically argue your way around it. As soon as Jesus says he's doing something for some people in his death that he doesn't do for everybody, you have to uh, give up the fight Limited atonement is there. That, that's all that we're saying. He did in his death something for the elect. He didn't do for the rest. But look at verse 17 and verse 18. What we see again here, we're going back to God's original sovereign intent behind the cross. And that is the Father's intent in sending his Son. Verse 17 says, For this reason the Father loves me, in verse 18, he says, I have received this charge from my father. He's speaking again about that covenant of redemption, that the father would send Christ to the earth, sorry, he would send the son to the earth to become the Christ in the place of the elect, that he would send the shepherd to the earth in the place of the sheep. The covenant of redemption stipulated that who he died for flows from why God sent him to die. Therefore, again, the extent of the atonement is tied to the intent of why God uh, uh, reckons the atonement. In verse 17, it says, the Father loves me because I'm dying for the sheep. Of course, as God the Son, he remained in the eternal love of God for all of eternity. But as the incarnate Christ, as the Redeemer, he actually earns the love of God. He actually kept the law to remain in the Father's blessing. He was standing in our place and for our sins and for our righteousness. So in that sense, he earned the love of God by dying for the people he sent him to die for. This is so central to the relationship that God has with his people through his son. Look at verse uh, 9 of chapter 17. We're going to skip out of this, this chapter and go forwards towards chapter 17. <clears throat> Now, now this, this takes a little bit of, of uh, um, biblical theology, but, but, but this is called the high priestly prayer of Christ because he is doing what high priests used to do after they make an atonement, or really all around the whole system of atonement. The high priest, we often think of the, 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 the mediatory or atoning work of Christ, and we, we, we don't realize how embedded with Old Testament uh, uh, themes it is, or rather we should say, we don't realize how long God had been preaching the cross through the, the temple sacrifices. But so many of those sacrifices point to the realities behind the cross. We think of the sacrifice, the blood shedding, as the only part of the atonement, and that's not true. The high priests 
uh, used to make, in their atonement, there would be two parts. They would firstly be sacrificing the animal, and by shedding the blood, they are showing God on the altar, blood is the cost of life, leave their blood in their body, let them live, instead receive this animal's blood, life is poured out, death is given. That was one part. But the other part was the laying the hands on the person or in the, in, in the Day of Atonement going into, the, into the, the, the most holy place and praying for the people. This is called the intercessory work where the mediator or the high priest goes in and pleads with God. We've made the sacrifice that you promised you would receive. Now I'm praying. This is a grace. I'm asking you, Lord, to graciously receive what we have bought. Our, our lambs are not enough. We do not inherently deserve your grace, but please give it to us on the merit of the sacrifice. The atoning work had those two parts, sacrifice and intercession. What we see in Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17 is him praying for the application over his people of his death just before he goes and sheds his blood as the high priest and the lamb, as the shepherd and the sheep. Now, the high priest in the Old Testament, he was making it, no, no one has a problem with this, by the way. Everyone agrees that the high priest in the Old Testament was making a sacrifice, making a payment for the sin only of the Israelites. It was obviously uh, 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 pre-picturing the cross, but it was obviously a limited atonement. It only applied to the Israelites. The, 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 the high priest is not shedding the blood for the Israelites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the, the, the Philistines. It just didn't happen. And also, when he went in to pray for those people, the tribes of Israel, he wore their names on his chest and prayed for them. And he wasn't praying for the Hittites, the Amorites, the Moabites, or any others. Okay, the, the, sacri- the people you sacrifice for are the people you pray for. Therefore, because it's one atoning work. Therefore, here's the argument. If you can find a place, say in Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, if you can find a place where Jesus is explicitly praying for one group and not the others, then you have there evidence of this whole system of Jesus laying his life down for one group and not for others. Verse 9. Verse 9 is exactly where we find this. We see Jesus limit his prayer, and we can reason from that with the rest of the biblical witness that Jesus had also limited his, uh, his sacrifice. John 17, verse 9, he says, I, and he's speaking of his, his people, those who currently believed in him. At that moment, it was pretty much just the apostles. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Jesus is explicitly giving us a picture here, what Hebrews will then pick up, that Jesus is a mediator that sacrifices sufficiently for his people and prays for his people. And because he prays for them, they will make it to the end. They will be saved. Therefore, we, we, we see this as a joint atonement. His prayer, his sacrifice, both made for a limited number of people, called the elect, what Jesus says, those who had given me before the foundation of the world. It's watertight. Berkhoff says, and this is a glorious doctrine that we should take joy in, that we were purchased certainly. Berkhoff says, why should he limit his intercessory prayer if he had actually paid the price for all? It's a great argument from Berkhoff there. <clears throat> okay, now also go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 
5. And in verse 25 to 27, we read more about the death of Christ. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Verse 27. So that he might present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. We're talking about limited atonement. Can you pull out of this text an exclusivity of Jesus' death? First of all, absolutely yes, because of the context in which Paul is making this, this, uh, this little theological aside. The context is telling husbands how they should love their wives. Let me tell you, it's not loving to your wife to say, love every woman equally. Amen, someone? No one? No, no wives want to give that a yes, thank you? If, if, the, if the argument is, Jesus died for everybody, then Paul's command, husband, loves your, love your wives and die for them the same way Jesus died. Oh, so for them, but only for them because they're here. Only for them because they chose to be my wife. My door is still open to every other woman and wife on the planet, right? Because my love is, is just like Christ's love. It's an inexclusive, all-welcoming, all-inviting love. That can't be the, the, that doesn't flow from the context of Paul's argument. He's saying you should have a specific, solitary, exclusive love for your wife in a way that you don't love others, just like Christ loved his church, his bride, in a way that he didn't love others and gave himself up for her. And then, of course, we, we, we see again this reality of the intent. We see Jesus' heart behind these words. Paul says uh, that, that Jesus Christ did not just give himself up for any that come, but we see his intention, his desire through giving himself up was for a specific woman called the church, his bride, made up of millions and billions of the elect. So you see there, he, he'll, he'll say, um, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We see his intention. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water and the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The intention of Christ in the cross was her personally, the bride that was given to him. And then thirdly, we can ask, or we can speak of, of the ongoing, the, the lasting effect that it has. Christ's love is specific, therefore a specific people are actually and fully atoned for in his death. Look at uh, uh, all through there, he, the, the effect is, um, in verse 26, that she is sanctified, washed by the water and the word, cleansed. In verse 27, that she is presented to Christ in splendor that she has no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she is made holy and without blemish. Do you see how if you tie the effect that the atonement has on people, if you tie that to what Christ wanted to do at the cross, then you can no longer leave the death of Christ as an open, ambiguous, inclusive for all atonement. Because you can't say that everybody he gave himself up for so that he could cleanse them all, redeem them all, make them all holy and without blemish presented to himself. None of that applies. 
So again, the ones who are actually limiting the atonement are the non-Calvinists who want to say that Jesus did the same thing for everybody, but what he did for everybody was simply not enough. It wasn't all the way. It wasn't fully to the extent of actually accomplishing the salvation. Charles Hodge, a, a theologian in the 1800s, there's a reference of his on that sheet of yours somewhere. I recommend getting his, theolo- his uh, systematic theology. It's free online. He says, What was the design of Christ's coming into the world and doing and suffering all that he actually did do and suffer? Was it merely, this is the question, this is the question, was it merely to make the salvation of all men possible to remove the obstacles which stood in the way of the offer of pardon and acceptance to sinners? Or was it specifically to render the certain salvation of his own people, i.e. those given to him by the Father before the foundations of the world? You ought to go and read that, set, that uh, chapter in his theological uh, work that you have there written on that. that it, is a, it is an example of exegetical theological brilliance. And that is the question. Did Jesus come to offer something to all people or did he come to actually secure salvation for a certain group of people? We've run out of time. We're not going to go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, but you can write that down. And that, that simply uh, uh, reads as to say that Jesus, uh, uh, that God purchased or obtained the church with his blood. And we see there again an exclusive language of him purchasing some in a way that he doesn't purchase others. The language here is used often in theology of sufficient for all, efficient for some. If you go, you'll forget this, that's fine, but if you go and read these books, it's going to come up in all of them. Sufficient for all, efficient for some. In other words, Jesus was God in flesh. He made the, the sacrificial atonement. Couldn't that cover all people, like, like who are these Calvinists trying to limit the value of Jesus' blood as if it can only cover a certain group of people? Friends, the answer is absolutely no one. No Reformed theologian has ever made that argument, and we ought not either. We are not saying that in the death of Christ, in the suffering of Christ, in the lifeblood shedding of Christ, there is only enough to cover the elect. We're not saying that. Therefore, we say his death was sufficient for all, such that God could redeem by the blood of Jesus shed on Calvary all of the sinners in this world and as many sinners fill as many worlds as there are sinners in this world. An infinite number of souls could be purchased with the blood of Christ. The question is not his value. The question is why did God send him? And therefore the theological language is sufficient for all, efficient or effective, actually enacting salvation for only some, which is the elect. Burkhoff says again, he says, the question does not relate to the design of the atonement. Did the Father in sending Christ and did Christ in coming into the world to make atonement for sin, did he do this? Sorry, it does relate to the design of the atonement. Rewind. The question does relate, so he says it doesn't relate to whether Christ is valuable enough. It does relate to the design of the atonement. I keep on saying this because if you get this, you get everything. Did the Father, in sending Christ, and did Christ, in coming into the world, to make atonement for sin, do this with the design, or for the purpose of saving only the elect, or for saving all men? 
That is the question, Burkhoff says, and that only is the question of limited atonement. I, I hope I've made my case biblically that we can amen with Burkhoff, Hodge, and other Reformed theologians to say Christ came into the world to actually, Matthew 1 verse 21 tells us, the reason his name is called Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, the reason he's called that is because he will save his people from their sin. He has a people. He will actually purchase them from their sin and enact and accomplish their total salvation. Therefore, we can just uh, uh, lastly ask the question then, (coughs) what did the death of Christ accomplish for the non-elect then? We need to be able to say that it did something for everybody, right? No, we don't need to be. We only need to if we find in Scripture those verses that tell us such things. And, and almost none of the verses that are usually gone to to say that Jesus died for the world meant that he died for all individuals. There is no sense that Jesus died on the cross purchasing something for every individual. There is no sense in, in that. Therefore, number one, what did, the, what did the death of Christ accomplish for the non-elect? It did not pay for any of their sins. Secondly, what did it accomplish for the non-elect? Well, from the effect of the cross, the non-elect person gets to live in the era of God's gracious gospel being perpetuated. In other words, they get to live in the kind of world where, where the Christian worldview invents things like modern science and medicine and hospitals and orphanages and democratic uh, uh, governments where, where if you're living in the West or anywhere that's sort of been affected by the West, whether we like it or not and can amen every uh, law that, that they have or not, we still need to recognize they have democracy, they have law codes that are based on the Ten Commandments because of the Christian worldview. Because Jesus died on the cross, there would be much light and salt spread all throughout the world. Not every person who is affected by that will be saved, and yet, I'm telling you, you would prefer to live with an elect person who is your father, or an elect person who is your brother, or your best friend, or your neighbor. You should prefer to live with that. It should be the case, and it is the case, that Christians being in the world have an effect on the non-elect that is gracious and that is a gift from God. But their sins are not forgiven on the cross. Thirdly, what the non-elect receive because of the cross is a free offer of the gospel. You can say to people, not knowing whether they're elect or not, and we can never know that, but you can say to every single person on the globe, God has displayed to you how, how gracious he is, how loving, how merciful he is, that if you simply believe, you trust, you have faith, You don't need to do anything. You don't need to tip the scales, do any good work. If you just believe in this moment, you trust Jesus to save you. He will. Do you understand that God is that gracious? Look at the cross. This is how loving he is. Every single human, elect and non-elect, receives that gracious message. And they receive the compelling command from evangelists, pastors, and I pray you, you should tell all people, without regard as to whether they're elect or not, Christ has been killed. You can be forgiven. Repent. 
Have faith in his finished work and you will be saved. There needs to be no hyper-Calvinism found here on the streets when we evangelize or anywhere to do with Hope Reformed Baptist Church. If they're living, if they're breathing, and if they're sinning, you give them the cross. You compel them to believe. You promise them forgiveness and you assure them that on their faith they will be reconciled with the holy God that currently condemns them. The knowledge of the elect of God does not rest in us and therefore we do not ignore it as irrelevant, but we do not uh, worry ourselves over who we preach the gospel to. We preach it to the world. In the canons of Dort, the Calvinists said, no man perishes for lack of an atonement. They perish because they don't believe. This is our gracious God. This is limited atonement. And we've, we've finished for the night. I just want to compel. I want to say, if you are somebody who knows that you're not in a saving relationship with Jesus, you don't have faith that rests on him, you've not found in the cross your amazing, amazingly sinful sinfulness. You, you don't see in the cross how guilty you are, and therefore you don't see in the cross how redeemed you can be, how gracious God is, how, how actual, powerful, and accomplishing the death of Christ is. Friends, I want to invite you and, in fact, compel you. Believe or you will die in your sins. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ or he will send you where you deserve, which is the eternal hell. We have a gracious God who killed his son in our place and who offers to you a free and final salvation. Can you bow your heads with me? I'm going to pray over us as we finish. Father God, with such an expansive topic and so many... uh, controversies and historical arguments to try and cover to make this case. We've, we've gone long and we, we appreciate your grace tonight, Lord, but we, uh, uh, we, we just won't plumb the depths of this ever. It's so much more than just something to argue about. It's so much more than just a theologian's controversy, Lord. This, this is the lifeblood of our souls. This is the joy of our hearts. This is our, our treasure and pleasure forevermore, that God has sent his son, that he has regarded our helpless estate and sent himself in the person of his son to to stand in our place and to to be destroyed for our sins. And he did that with us in mind. And it it was an immutable, impotent, actual, powerful work that would never fail because he was purchasing in that moment the exact people who he was sent to redeem. Father God, we simply are humbled and on our knees, we, we simply thank you and we give you all of the glory and ask that the soul-saving message of the gospel would explode from this church and it would reach millions and it would see many saved to the glory of our Lord and King, the, the crucified lamb and the resurrected lion, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.